Thanks for the water, Aim. Our sermon text is Psalm chapter 26. Psalm chapter 26. Verse 1 says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I will walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and for your compassion and grace shown in, in giving your Son to die on, on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship this provides us with you and with Jesus Christ. And we're grateful to be your child and to know that our sins have been forgiven. Lord, keep us from using your grace as a license to sin, but help us to despise sin just as you despise it. Lord, give us a pure heart and a genuine commitment to always do your will. And Lord, use us to lead others to you and to help others be faithful to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Roger, for reading our text today. We're grateful for that. And yes, Amy, thank you so much for that water. It almost made it sound like, uh, you know, Roger led our singing there and when he thanked Amy, and maybe it sounded like it on, on online as I sounded like Grover, but it was me. <laughs> so I was, I was singing, trying to focus on the words, but I kept hearing Grover's voice come out. So I was like, what is going on? All right, today we are continuing our series here in Psalm 26. So our series, God's Playlist, a study through the Psalms, and hopefully it has been an encouragement to you thus far. It has. Uh, been to me, and uh, to be able to take the time to study these psalms and work through them in light of what's going on in our world, uh, I thought it was ex- especially kind of God and His providence to have us go through Psalm 24 when we did, and so, and then Psalm 25 last week was great encouragement, and now here we are at Psalm 26, and uh, and, and many of the uh, commentaries that have read. Um, they see a link, a tight link between Psalm 25 and Psalm 26. And in this tight link, they see, uh, as we looked at last week, David having laid bare his soul, lifted up his soul to God, trusting in Him, but describing many of his, his sinfulness and, and his need for redemption and uh, his turning to God and trusting in His mercy and steadfast love and calling God then to teach him and instruct his ways so that he might live in light of God's teaching. And then here we come to Psalm 26, and it's kind of like here's the fulfillment of it. David walking in God's ways, God uh, demonstrating his care for uh, his people who follow after 
Him. And so today, the title of the sermon is Worshiping the Defender and Firm Foundation. Worshiping the Defender and Firm Foundation. Psalms, as these playlists of God, the songs that God has collected are calls for us to worship. And today we're going to see God as both the defender of his people and the firm foundation upon which we can build our life. And as we come into this and as we begin to uh, walk through this, and as Roger read there, you, you know, vindicate me because I've walked in my integrity and this focus on uh, the, uh, the psalmist of David on his own integrity. And uh, as we get to the end of verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. We have to remember that the righteous life of God's people, our integrity, is not a meritorious ground for us to appeal to God. It's not a ground where we can say, well, I've done this now, so God, now you have to show me care and love and you have to save me. We know, and David is not arguing this at all, we know from the rest of Scripture that our works cannot save us unless they are completely perfect. That's the, the only way that we could be saved. And in, and in essence, what we're basically saying is if our, if our works were perfect, if our life was perfect, if we had no sin, we really wouldn't even need saving, right? Saving implies that there's something we need to be saved from. And if we had perfect lives and no sin, we would not have to face the wrath of God because our lives would be perfectly acceptable by God. But we know that's not the case. That's not the case for David here. That's not what David is arguing. He's not arguing his own integrity as the meritorious, the earned ground upon which he can appeal to God, but rather the evidential ground for his appeal. How, how does David know he's one of God's people, one of the covenant people of promise, is that God has so radically changed his life that he can now walk in integrity? And because of this new life that God has given to him, he can then appeal on the basis of that evidence of a new life, that fruit of a new life. He can appeal to God. And that is a good ground upon which to appeal. In fact, we see that, that when we aren't living according to the way God calls us to, that there are times in which God does not hear his people. Psalm 66, 18 The psalmist writes, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. The Lord would not have listened. What is he saying? He's saying, if I love sin, and then I try to worship God, or I try to make my appeal before God, I bring up my prayers to God, God is not listening. Or in Isaiah 1, 15 and 16, when God says, when you spread out your hands, spreading out their hands in worship, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Now again, the psalmist and Isaiah are not trying to describe how a people save themselves and earn favor with God. What they're attempting to describe is how God's people, when they live for God, have a free audience with God. But when God's people live in sin, 
their sin creates a barrier with their father. Their father is unwilling to hear them as they seek to live lives apart from him in rejection to him. And so it's important for us to understand that David is writing as a covenant follower of God, not just as a general sinner who has a desperate need for God. People might be in this room right now that are sinners in desperate need of God. And we're going to look at how this psalm points to the grace of God that saves everyone. And so you may be that general sinner, and you may be say, well, I've tried to walk in my integrity, and I can't. And you're right, you can't. Our, integri- our integrity won't save us. We can't, apart from the work of God, walk in our own integrity. Rather, what do we need? We need the grace of God to save us. Grace that is unearned, undeserved, favor given to us by God that transforms us so that we might then be able to walk in our integrity. And integrity that has been enabled by God's grace to us. So I I wanted right here at the beginning, right at the introduction, to kind of step on that idea of this is not a meritorious ground upon which David is appealing, but an evidential ground. It's the evidence of being saved that he is presenting. And so the main point today is this. You are invited to join in worshiping God who is your defender and the firm foundation of your life. You're invited to join in worshiping God who is your defender and the firm foundation of your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you give grace to us as we open up your word and look into the psalm. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we see our great desperate need to live in righteousness and integrity. May that be our desire. May that be our end as we seek to follow after You. And for those who have not yet not yet trusted in Jesus as Savior, Lord, may they today turn from their sins and trust in Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that in turn, as they turn and trust, they too can then live in righteousness and godliness and holiness because of the work that You do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I'm going to be asking two questions, and then I'm going to uh, ask us how we can connect it to everyday life. So first question is this, why appeal to God for your defense? And then secondly, what does it look like to trust God's defense? So why appeal to God for your defense, and then what does it look like to trust God's defense? And the reason I use the word defense is the very first phrase there in this psalm, vindicate me Oh, Lord. The idea here of vindication, some, some translations have judged me, oh, Lord. But un- unfortunately, that can sometimes have the connotation of maybe the judge will judge me negatively. But that's not the prayer of David here. It's not judge me maybe positively, maybe negatively. No, vindication has this idea of the appeal is being made so that the judge might positively uh, affect the outcome. He might have a positive view. He might defend the one who is being um, mistreated or um, who is uh, being offended by another party. And so that's the call that David has here. It's not just a general judge me like we saw um, even in, in the last chapter where he, uh, 
he describes uh, his desire to put himself before God's judgment and allow God to vindicate him in some ways. Um, but rather here he's saying, uh, defend me, take up my cause. And, 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 many, and in many ways in which we would look at that and say, maybe the, the, the judge in the courtroom is not the right picture for us. That you know, we see a judge sitting on his bench, and what are, what are expectations? Well, a righteous judge is going to be impartial, right? So um, he's appealing to the judge to, to declare him positively uh, righteous. But yeah, we want our judge to be impartial. So maybe a better understanding of this as he's just calling on God to vindicate him is he's not just appealing to God as the judge, but also God as the defender as well, the defense. He's the attorney for the defense. And that's what Jesus Christ functions as on our behalf. Jesus Christ is the attorney that defends us before the judgment of God. And yet we understand Jesus to be God as well. So God, in God's courtroom, God is both the judge and the defending attorney. Now, for those who die in their sins apart from Jesus Christ, God is also the prosecution, right? I mean, this is God's courtroom. God decides how it functions. And so here, David's call is for God to come to his defense. And the first reason that why we should appeal to God for defense is God is the highest authority you can appeal. God is the highest authority you can appeal. This world will not completely accept you or defend you when you live godly lives. In fact, it is often the case that there is a great reaction to people seeking to live godly lives, seeking to live under the authority of God. And, and in, in our society, we see that... Um, we see that amped up in certain areas. There's certain areas in which they're like, oh, if you want to meet on Sunday, that's fine. Do your thing, right? You know, but when we start to talk about, you know, uh, we uh, believe that the baby in the womb has right to life because it was created in the image of God and therefore it, is, is, it should be protected and it has sanctity. And when we start to, to move into the areas like that, what do we see? We see the world rejecting us, standing opposed to us. So there's some ways in which if, if it's not affecting the world at all, if, you're, if your little Christianity thing and living godly doesn't really affect anything around me, then yeah, go ahead and do it. But when, when Christianity starts to affect other things, which inevitably it does, if you're living Christianity rightly, it will. Like it affects other things. It comes into other people's lives. The world is not ready to completely accept you or defend you. And only God can and will defend you. And He can do so in this life if He chooses. So we have examples in Scripture, glorious examples of where God, um, God defended the life of His followers who were living out their integrity before a watching world. I can think of two that come in the same book of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Right? Can you think of them? You got the three Hebrew children. I always call them children, but they weren't really like kids. They're three Hebrew men, right? 
Um, and we always remember them by their Babylonian names and not by their Jewish names, but that's okay. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they stand up to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, we will not bow to your idol, which you know, is part of the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, they're just they're obeying the laws of God. There's no other God before him. And it came before the Ten Commandments, um, and it's still true today. We're not meant to worship anything other than God. And so they stand up for their Christianity in their integrity. And, and, and they, do they appeal to Nebuchadnezzar? Surely they do. But what is Nebuchadnezzar's response? Throw them into the fiery furnace. A furnace so blazing hot that the people who throw them in die. Um, and so his, his response is not to defend them and their right to not worship you know, another god, but rather to seek to destroy them. And yet, what do they say? They say, if God spare us, you know, he has that power, but if not, we will not bow. So they're willing to burn up in a fiery furnace to serve God. And God spares them, right? We know the story. God spares them. And the ropes burn off. That's always amazing. I'm always excited about this. The ropes burn off of them, but they are not consumed. Not only that, there's another man that appears in the midst of them. And they come out and they are unharmed completely by the flames. We have the same thing happen with Daniel, where the king gives an edict that they are to pray to no one but him. right? And Daniel prays to God three times a day. And so they wait for him. To get caught, they catch him in the act of praying to the one true God. And so they have him thrown into a den of lions. And these are not small lions. These are not well-fed lions. These are hungry, ravenous lions. And yet, David is unharmed. In fact, the king comes you know, after the time and comes and says, Daniel, did your God save you? <laughs> He's, Daniel's like, yes, he did. He did. I mean, so God can, if He chooses, defend us in very miraculous ways in this life. And yet, as you read through uh, passages like Hebrews chapter 11, in the very end of it, it talks about how some of them were saved gloriously, but others died for their faith. But there are many times when we must stand, and as we stand, we must sacrifice and give of ourselves and uh so that's what we as we find in scripture sometimes god will choose to defend us in this life and yet he will definitely defend us in eternity that's the hope that whatever we sacrifice in this life jesus told his disciples will be returned to them 100 fold the glories of eternity in heaven that we are promised far outweigh any sacrifice that happens in this life. And so as David prays, he's praying for God to vindicate him. And yet, I think he would rightly understand in light of the Old Testament that he didn't call it the Old Testament. It was the only testament at the time. That the light of the, the, the writings that he had from Scripture, he would know that sometimes God does save and sometimes God does not save in this life. But that does not mean that all is lost. For what God promises in eternity far outweighs any present sacrifice. And so his desire is for God to defend him, both in this life, but definitely in the next. But not only that, not only is God the highest authority, but God knows your attitudes and actions. 
The second one, God knows your attitudes and actions. God's omniscience, and omniscience means he's all-knowing, so he knows all things. God's omniscience is a comfort to those seeking to live godly lives, but is hated by those pursuing an ungodly lifestyle. God's omniscience is a comfort to those who seek to live godly lives, but is hated by those pursuing an ungodly lifestyle. And so what do we see here? We see that God, uh, David is willing to put his trust in a God who knows all of his attitudes and actions. And when he writes that very second line there, for I have walked in my integrity, David himself knows, and for many of the Psalms he's written, he knows that God is a God who is omniscient, who knows all his attitudes and actions. He cannot fool God. He can fool everyone else around him, but he cannot fool God. And so when he says, I have walked in my integrity, he is implying, I have sought to follow your laws. I've sought to live according to your ways. One commentator linked this, and I think it's an appropriate link. He linked this walking in integrity to the last half of the Ten Commandments. It's implying an obedience to the the last half of the Ten Commandments, which are directed to our relationships with others, our relationships in this world to one another. And then, in turn, uh, David goes on to say, and I have trusted in the Lord. And that implication is towards the first half of the Ten Commandments. I'm not trusting in any other God. I'm not putting my hope in any other God. I'm not taking God's name in vain. I am trusting in God. So here, as as David describes himself, he says, I am walking in my daily life and the way I live towards others in integrity. And in that walk, I am trusting in the Lord. And again, his mere morality is not saving. But... A, a Christian life without morality is an abomination to God. It is an abomination to Christians, right? People who claim to be Christians but don't live out their Christianity should be not only an abomination to God, but an abomination to us as well. And then trusting in God throughout life. Hingstenberg wrote this, trust in God is the fountain of integrity, the fountain of our morality. As David seeks to walk in integrity, it's an overflow of his trust in God that ultimately comes without wavering, which the third point is God is the firm foundation. God is the firm foundation. And that without wavering could be translated um, without slipping, not having slid Um, He is standing firm, which really parallels what he says in the last verse, verse 12. We'll talk about that now too. My foot stands on level ground. Notice what he says right before that. I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. Just paralleling what he said before. I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord. Now I will walk in integrity. You redeem me, God. You You be gracious to me. I'm trusting in you. I'm walking in integrity. I'm trusting in you. My foot stands on level ground. I do not waver. I do not slip. Here is the firm foundation upon which I stand. He is our 
trustworthy defender because he is the firm foundation we each can stand on in this life. David's confidence and trust was in the fact that he could stand firm on God, trusting in him, and know that his life lived, living out God's ways would never be in vain. Even as others turned against him, even as others sought to use that against him, even as others sought to take advantage of him because of his goodness and his kindness and his morality and his integrity. What does David know? He will be vindicated by his God. And his life will have been built on a firm foundation. No matter what the cost, a life of integrity may cost you a life of morality that ultimately we're understanding this is is a life that God has called us to live. A life that God has made it possible for us to live. All the costs of that will be worth it. Because God will vindicate us. So this is why we can appeal to God for our defense. But what does it look like to trust God's defense then? And that's really here the rest of our psalm. What does it look like to trust God's defense? So two things. First of all, you submit to God's viewpoint and trust His character. You submit to God's viewpoint and trust His character. Verse 2 starts, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Prove me, try me. Test me. His desire is for everything in his life to come in conformity with God's viewpoint, with God's way of life. His desire is to live out those Ten Commandments and all the commandments that God has given. His desire is to live in light of them. And then in turn, his, his call is, God, as you're vindicating me, prove me, try me, test me. Know, know my heart, know my mind. So that they all will become, they all will line up, will, will come in alignment, will become conformed to your way. He goes on to say in verse 3, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Why would he be willing to do this? Because he knows the steadfast love of God. The mercy that God has demonstrated towards his people. He knows not only that God is merciful, and so David set that before his eyes. So he's willing to lay his life bare before God because God is merciful. But not only that, he is faithful. And David's sought to walk in God's faithfulness. It's always interesting to me when, when a writer writes something like that, for I walk in your faithfulness. Because normally when we think of faithfulness, we think of it has to be our faithfulness, right? I'm walking in a way that you're calling me to, so therefore I am faithful. But that's not what David says. David says, I walk in your faith. I walk in my integrity, David said, but I walk in your faithfulness. Our only hope is that God would remain faithful to his promises, to his words, to his work. You know, what good is it if God says, Yes, walk in my ways? And, and, and you, will, you will see my love and care as a father loves a son who is obedient to him. And so we walk in his ways, and then God's like, but I changed my mind. Right? 
I mean, have you ever had a dad who you really tried to do your best to serve and to obey, and they didn't see it? They're like, they still yelled at you that day or something. I know I failed as a dad like that. And come back later and say, they were actually really trying to do what I asked them to do and do what's right, but I didn't see it, and I just, I just got angry, you know? God doesn't do that. God's faithful to his promises. God keeps his word. God is able to see all the good that we do and delight in it. In fact, we're told he sings over his children who live in obedience to him. And so we should, we should keep this before our eyes. We should keep this before our eyes. And, and the ones who seek to live godly lives are the ones who keep this before their eyes, are reminded of, their, of, of the mercy of God, are reminded of His faithfulness. It's, it's kind of interesting because, because there are, are a lot of people who are seeking to live, and I'll put it in quotes, godly lives to earn God's favor. And they miss His mercy. Because they aren't actually living the way God calls them to live. God calls us, as His people, to live in dependence upon Him. doesn't deny the fact that we make choices. doesn't deny the fact that we have to choose to live in obedience. But we live dependent on Him. And it starts with us dependent on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save us from our sins. And so, so as we continue to place that kind of mercy before our eyes, our desire is to live for Him. And in turn, as we live for Him, what do we do? We continue to then put that mercy before our eyes and remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and have that in front of us as we seek to live godly lives. These kind of things are always before the eyes of those who seek to live godly lives. They they celebrate it. We should celebrate. I mean, one of the one of the reasons we uh, participate in the Lord's table is to put the mercy of God before our eyes and celebrate it, and to remember what He's done for us. That's what people who are seeking to live godly lives, seeking to live out their integrity, do. Seeking to trust God's defense. That's what they do. They do not neglect to observe God's great mercy for us. Not only that, we see, I'm going to skip down to verse uh, 6 and verse 7. I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. What does it look like to trust God's defense? Well, you wash washes his hands now that's just not like a you know i know it's big in covid and everything we got to wash our hands and look the bible says wash your hands and, and, but it says to do it in innocence <laughs> so, wait what how do i do that um well it's not just referring to like you know after you use the bathroom or whatever wash your hands it's actually a part of the worship of god at the temple as they came into the temple, specifically the priests, before they went up to the altar, which again is important as it, as it references the altar here, they would wash their hands to signify their desire for purity before the Lord, their desire to be cleansed before they enter into God's presence. So it signified this kind of cleansing that they desired. So in, in essence, it was somewhat of a, of a confessional 
confessing their sins and trusting that God is faithful and just to forgive their sins. No. They would have rightly understood that the act itself didn't save them or didn't cleanse them or didn't wash them. The same way that we understand when we practice baptism. As someone is baptized, it's representing their cleansing from sin and their death to this world and their new life in Christ. But it doesn't happen when someone is baptized. The the water of baptism doesn't actually wash anyone clean from sin. We know it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the same thing's true even in the temple. Because what would they do after they, the priests were cleansed with the water and the washing of their hands? They would go up to the altar. And what would they do on the altar? They would sacrifice. So that blood was shed to cover their sins. And the blood of the sacrifice was pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice who would save them. And so they understood, if they were thinking through it properly with with, with God-given eyes, that the washing of the hand was just a picture. The same is true here. This I wash my hands in innocence. As, G, as David points them to the picture and us to that picture, so the same thing is true. Our desire of our hearts should be that we are clean. And so we confess our sins and trust He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then what do we do? We go around Your altar, O Lord. Now probably the picture here is of the priests surrounding the altar in worship as the, as the sacrifice is being made. They would surround this altar. And so David's placing himself kind of in that position with the priest, going around God's altar and worshiping Him. And that's where we see verse 7 go to, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. I like what this... This author wrote, this commentator wrote, if pious prophets, apostles, judges, lawgivers, and kings felt the worship of God to be so important, what vanity it is in us to decline it or be indifferent to it. So submitting to God's viewpoint and His character, we see that David's call is not only that we lay our lives bare before Him and put His mercy before our eyes, but then respond in worship to Him coming with, with hearts of confession over the sins we've committed, trusting in the work of Jesus and His sacrifice as the altar points to Him, and then proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. He goes on to write, it is a great mistake of some that they confine their praises to occasions of prosperity and joyfulness. This is not God's arrangement. This was not David's plan. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises in the prison at Philippi. So let us bless and praise the Lord at all times because at all times we have cause for so doing. At all times. Here, here David begins with his prayer of vindication. I need your defense because I'm seeking to live a godly life and yet I feel threatened And then where does he get to in verse 6 and 7? I should be praising you. I I should be worshiping you in this time. I mean, in all times, we are meant to praise and worship God. And he goes on in verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Loving the habitation of his house, the place where his glory dwells. In, In verse, at the end of verse 12, what does he say? He says, My foot stands on level ground, and in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. 
To submit to God's viewpoint and trust His character is to love His people, love gathering with His people, love assembling together with His people, not just to be together, but why? To see the glory of God, to bless the Lord, to worship Him together. So it's, it's, it's not enough to just worship Him privately. Although verse 6 and 7 aren't really arguing for that. But I think sometimes that's the way we think. It needs to invade every aspect of our life. But then it also needs to be apparent in who we gather together with. To worship, to praise, to be with God's people. And that, in that day, the, the, David will be saying, so come to His temple. Come to His temple and worship with His people. Let's all get together. And let's just have a big worship party to God because He is glorious and He is good. He is the trustworthy defender. Let's all run to Him. And today, it's not at the temple. Today, we gather as His people. Majority of God's people gather on Sunday because of the resurrection. They gather together on Sunday and they come to make His glory known to to give their thanksgiving to Him together, to sing His praises, to bless Him. That should be our desire. That we would submit to God's viewpoint and trust His character, having a desire to be with God's people and gather with God's people. You know, there's, there's ways in which we can be providentially hindered from that. I totally get it, especially in this COVID environment. There are definitely ways that we can be providentially hindered, but the desire of our heart should be when I can, however I can, I want to be with God's people. I want to be a part of the gathering of God's people. You know, even as you're online, like there should be this desire. I want, I want to connect somehow. I want to, uh, I want to be involved somehow. And so using any means that we have to reach out and establish those connections and be with God's people. Verse 9, do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. His desire, his desire is, is not to be drawn into that. His desire is not to be found within that company. His, his, his active posture is to reject that because he does not want to be swept away. Not just in this life in the sense of being swept into all sorts of sins, but ultimately to, to live under the judgment of God. Ultimately, maybe even to, to demonstrate that he never his profession, what he believed was true in his profession of God, was really not true. He really did not love God. He really did not desire after God. He had not been found to be a part of faith, the covenant community of God, God's people. We found rather to have remained in his sins as a sinner, his part with bloodthirsty men. And so his desire is to keep himself from that. And you will say, well, isn't it, isn't it Jesus who keeps us saved? Yes, if we are saved, it's Jesus who keeps us saved. But as we live out this life, what does that look like? It looks like us saying no to sin, right? It looks like us rejecting sin. It's, it looks like us fighting off sin. I don't want to be a part of that number. I don't want to be found with them. Verse 11, 
declares his desire for the future, his desire for what his life would be. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. I have been. And my desire is that my life would continue. It would continue to submit to God's viewpoint and trust His character. It wouldn't wane. It wouldn't stop. It wouldn't slip. There wouldn't be any wavering, but rather He would stand on solid, firm ground. The firm ground is to embrace God's viewpoint of our lives and to trust His character as we seek to live out that life. Notice as He says that, what does He say? I will walk in this integrity. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. He's doing this all the while trusting in God's redemption and grace. And we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But the faith that saves us is never alone. I like how John Piper worded it. The faith that alone justifies is never alone, but always yields transforming fruit. The faith that alone justifies is never alone, but always yields transforming fruit. Just because we are not saved according to our works, John Tweedale writes, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about pursuing a life of joyful obedience to God's Word. Jesus emphatically states, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience, however frail, however feeble, is evidence of our love for Christ. And far from undermining the gospel of grace, good works are the perfect complement to the gospel. In fact, we see it in this verse. This verse is such a great verse for that. Verse 11, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. Trusting in the character of God who redeems, who is gracious. But just as you submit to God's viewpoint and trust His character to trust in His defense, so you reject the viewpoint of the sinful world and its sinful practices. You reject the viewpoint of the sinful world and its sinful practices. We see this in verses 4 and 5, and then again in verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. Here in verse 4 and 5, we see Him describe his desire is not to sit with men of falsehood nor consort with hypocrites. He hates the assembly of the evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. So he won't sit with them, consort with them, or assemble with them. And uh, our understanding of sit there is not necessarily just, just you know, hanging out with them. There's an understanding here within this culture of of men would sit together and usually they would be passing judgment. Oftentimes they would sit at the gate of, of, uh, of the cities or other places, uh, the prominent places in the city, and they would sit and they would give judgments. And here David is saying, I will not sit and bear judgment with men of falsehood or ultimately with men that are wicked. These are the tools and weapons of evil and no good can come from them. And so here are men who probably have power. I mean, David, obviously, uh, he's someone who ultimately has power as the king of all Israel, yet his, his conviction is he will not sit with. If they are men who demonstrate a consistent uh, speaking of falsehood, a consistent level of 
hypocrisy, he will not sit with him. He, he will not deem them worthy of, of giving a, a judgment upon any of the dealings of his life. And here's how we see this, this idea of rejecting the viewpoint of the sinful world. He's not willing to let the sinful world make judgment calls. Because we go back to the first point, right? It's God's viewpoint that determines David's life. It's God's viewpoint that determines what a godly life looks like. Not humanity. Not a sinful world. Not men who are given over to falsehood. Not men who consort with hypocrisy and hypocrites. He's not willing to put himself in that company. William Plummer wrote this, one of the greatest mysteries in human nature is the slowness of men to learn that no good is likely to come to those who love and frequent evil company, while blessings of the greatest value seem naturally to fall on those who shun the society of the vicious and love that which is godly. It's interesting how we see that play out over and over again in our world. Now, the, the description here, David's not saying, I'm removing myself from the world. What is he saying? I'm not willing to live under their judgment, under their viewpoint, under their way of life. And this is Jesus telling us, you are going to live in the world, but don't live of the world. You know, and even Plummer's quote, it's not saying you shouldn't have ungodly friends. Because they need the gospel, and you've been put there to share the gospel with them. But if they're your best friends, and they're the ones who you trust to help you make decisions in life, you've got a problem. Because the news that you're getting, the information that you're getting from them, is evil. It's from a sinful heart that's unredeemed. Or it's from a redeemed heart that is not willing to submit themselves to God at that moment in time. Like we must be careful. If we are going to live lives of integrity, we're going to live godly lives, we must be careful what kind of input we take into our life that determines how our life should be lived. Because these very people then are the people described in verse 10, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. We see the thoughts of sinful humanity are not far away from the acts of sinful humanity. And if we give ourselves to their judgments on what li our life is meant to be looked like, guess what the product is going to be? A life of sin. A life of sinful practices. And the fact is, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's very easy for us as Christians to not understand how much, how much the world is affecting us. Like, I'm not saying don't watch TV. You know, there's some people who've said that don't watch TV. You know, they, you hear the preacher, you know, like, yeah, I went home and I grabbed the scissors and I cut the cord off on a TV and we turned it off. We're not having that influence. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you should know the influence. Be aware of the influence and reject it. That's what I'm saying. Reject the influence of the sinful world. 
in order to reject it, we have to be confronted by it. And so David was able to go and he was able to see what was going on with these men as they sat in the gate giving judgment. He was able to then see hands whose who's, um, hands who were working evil devices and hands who were committed to taking bribes. And in that moment, he has a choice. He can accept that as the way that things work, right? That's just the way the world works. So I'm just going to go along with it. Or I can say, no, I'm rejecting the world's way of doing things. I'm rejecting the world's way of viewing things. I'm rejecting the outcome that comes living out sinful practices, and I'm embracing God's viewpoint. And I'm going to live according to God's character, trusting in Him. The fact is, as we consider sin, even just in this short psalm, but if we were to look at all the psalms, as one commentator wrote, there must be something dreadful in sin because the Bible exhausts the vocabulary to show its dreadful nature. Hands full of bribes, wicked evildoers, hypocrites, falsehood, evil devices is what comes out of their hands. I mean, it's dreadful what is going on. And yet, and yet sin is oftentimes something we are not terribly concerned about. I mean, yeah, we think about it. Yeah, we're confronted by it. But, but oftentimes we're more we're, we, we struggle more with you know the things outside of us that uh, you know make life difficult for us or make life hard for us. Not necessarily the sin that is permeating into us that is invading us through through the uh, the the viewpoint of our worldly system ultimately ultimately calling to our sinful nature to react and live according to. In which I agree with the commentator who writes it is always wise to be more afraid of sin than of temporal evil of doing wrong more than of suffering wrong. So, I mean, we can get so focused on the fact that we're suffering wrong, that wrong is being done, or we have to face this kind of wrong or that kind of wrong, or this hurt or that hurt, and not realize that the actual sin of us, us buying in to this world's way of thinking that rejects God and His ways and living sinful lives is much more harmful than any uh, suffering of wrong that we might have to face. He goes on to write, nothing hurts us till our souls are hurt. If we do right, we may boldly defy the universe of malignant creatures to do us any real harm. And that's truly thinking like a Christian. Truly thinking like Christ, right? Christ is like, okay, Sinful world that rejects me, Satan, do your worst. You can't defeat me. And then he says to his people, listen, the way they treated me, they're going to treat you. And they can kill your body, but they can never take your soul. So you look at this world, the sinful world, you look at Satan and say, do your worst. I am hidden in Christ. And you can't touch that. We can confidently say, 
with the writer of Hebrews, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So how can we connect this to everyday life? First of all, who or what are you trusting to defend you? You buy into this worldly worldly system, this worldly way of thinking, worldly practices, sinful practices. Now your, your trust and hope is that it's going to defend you, and we know it won't. It can't. Before, uh, before an almighty God, it cannot stand, not only just in this life, but in the next. Like your, your hope in this life to somehow uh, make sense of it on your own, somehow your own reasoning to help you figure out how the world should work, it's not going to work in the end. As you stand before God, that will not defend you. Our only defense is found in Jesus Christ. His death, His resurrection saves us from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. And so our hope and trust is meant to be put in Him. And you know that's specifically a call to unbelievers, but believers, where is your trust right now? Have you bought in? You know, having put your trust in Jesus Christ, have you then embraced some of the sinful world and the way its way of thinking, make sense of life, or have you continually put your hope and trust in God as your defense, willing to live for Him no matter what, no matter what the cost? Secondly, how are you actively pursuing godliness and rejecting sinfulness? What does it look like to actually put your trust in God's defense? Pursue godliness and reject sinfulness. Willing to say no to sin. Willing to know God's will and God's ways. Willing to search His Scriptures and put your confidence in Him. And then thirdly, how are you expressing worship to God? You can think of this in two ways based upon our sermon here as your defender and as your firm foundation. How are you expressing worship? You have to sacrifice as a Christian. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's having to, to choose a specific thing that, you know, your your coworkers look at you and say, well, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you choose to participate in this and have fun in this way? Or why won't you laugh at this crude joke? Or why won't you, you know, do these certain things? Do you express worship? God as your defender and your firm foundation. While, while they might have this expression of joy for a moment, their end, see their end, slipping down into destruction. And here we are able to stand firm in this life, expressing worship to God as your defender, as you are uh, possibly ridiculed or rejected for your stance on things like uh, abortion or homosexuality or things like that. Do you worship the fact that you have a defender? You, although others who maybe you thought were your friends or mistreating you or whatever, you have a defender who would defend you to the end. You have a foundation you can stand on when other things will give way. I hope that is the case. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your goodness and we thank You for 
the opportunity to see your truth here in the scripture. And I pray that it would challenge us and direct us, not only us, but Lord, as your church opens your word throughout this world, that we would willing to embrace your truth and reject a sinful worldview that exists all over your world, all around us. That your life through your truth being proclaimed by uh, your churches and your people is the hope, is the hope of this world. It is the rejection of our sin of a sinful worldview. It is the embracing of, of your view as the only right way to live. And may we may we preach that faithfully and confidently. May we stand on it faithfully and confidently. Uh, not only us, but we pray for New Life Church and Lubumbashi. We pray for uh, gospel grace in Atlanta. We, uh, we ask that you would continue to demonstrate your grace, not just to us, but to them as they open your word today as well. The way we all embrace your truth and seek to apply it in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.